This time on the Roll Right Radio Podcast with New York Mike. I did have some other jobs, but let me tell you something about those jobs. I was making money. I was getting paid. I was earning a living. I was like from 11, 12, 13, and then 14 and 15, you're, you're a little bit bigger. You could take on more things. So I went from Ropage to BZB. In the wintertime, I started thinking about what other things. It's kind of cool to think about it. I made a lot of money shoveling snow. That was like a big payday. Anytime it snowed, man, you know, break out the shovels and get out there and, and do it. And that was a big deal. So how else do we make money? I'm talking about legitimate ways. He wears black denim trousers and motorcycle boots and a black leather jacket with his name on the back. He does a patriotic podcast called Roll Right Radio. His name is New York Mike, and welcome to the show. This is Roll Right Radio. I'm New York Mike. This is New York Mike with Roll Right Radio. Petrina's the producer. Yeah, baby. So, Roll Right Radio. Uh, and thanks for listening. By the way, subscribe. Tell your friends. We've been on a roll, a real roll with Roll Right since we went on that tour. I went on that 30-day motorcycle ride with Robert Patrick, and we traveled the country. We went from here to Boston, stopped in a bunch of places all the way all around. And Robert, my really dear friend, was promoting Roll Right Radio. It was like, wow, this wasn't supposed to be a, a Roll Right Radio tour. That was not the sole purpose of it, but you would think it was. Not only would you think it was, it, it became that. As we set out, and Robert and I were talking about the ride that he had planned and I jumped into, and so he just picked up the ball and ran with it. And by the time we got back, the subscriptions and the listeners, the numbers were just going through the roof. and They've been going, and that's great. And it gives... Me and Petrina and, of course, the whole team, it gives us all a really good feeling on about what we're doing and, and where we're going. And, and that's a great thing. And that's why I'm going to continue to ask you guys. It's like you got to ask for the sale. Being, you know, a sales guy all my life, you got to be selling something. And at some point, you recognize that, wait a minute, you got to ask for the sale. If you don't ask for the sale, you're not going to get anything. They're going to look at you and say, did you want me to buy that? That doesn't happen in real life. It just doesn't. And so things have been going really good, and they're getting better. And the more subscribers and the more you listen, the more you tell your friends, the more you give us feedback, the more you like what you're listening to. And I know it goes up and back. I'm still learning how to be a person on the microphone, or however you want to call it. But we're getting better. The evidence is going to be... You subscribe, tell your friends to subscribe, talk about it, pump it up, and, and give us that feedback. Thank you. So on another note, one of the things that I've been getting this guidance about is what to talk about, how to bring in subjects and talk about, you know, what's politics, what's personal, what's this. And there's a lot of, I don't want to say pressure, there's a lot of guidance is what it is towards saying, hey, we want to hear stories. We want to hear more about what's going on. And so the last episode was all about growing up in Brooklyn, the hand you dealt, where I come from. Where... But you know what's interesting about that? I wrote this whole list, and Petrina said, okay, honey, why don't you just 
get on there and, and just grab one topic at a time. And so I have, and I talked about this a couple of episodes ago, talking about the Trump's executive privilege and then the whole January 6th, quote unquote, investigation and all that. We talked about inflation. We're talking about foreign policy and all these things. And they're all important. And getting to each of these, I'm not sure one at a time really works. I think things coincide. Leadership, leadership is the number one thing. It's like in real estate. They say the most important thing is location. What's the second most important thing? Location. What's the third? Well, you get it. And I think the same thing with leadership. Every one of these other topics, calling parents domestic terrorists, immigration policies, race as a military priority, diversity as a policy, instead of finding the best person for the job, get people of different, whether it's all whack, but it's all about the leadership. I, I try to give an example of leadership, and I wrote down a lot of things about the, the leadership of the Trump policies, the Trump era, the Trump presidency, Donald Trump himself. If you saw Donald Trump in his TV show, The Apprentice, his leadership here, I know there are two teams, there's heads of the teams, each team has a leader, but the real leadership is coming from Donald Trump. And if you watch that program, you know, I don't watch a lot of TV stuff. I watch a lot of news. Yeah, I check out CNN all the time. I listen to Fox a lot. But I, I don't follow a lot of different shows. Over the years, yeah, this one, that one. But The Apprentice, if I watched 10 or 20 episodes over how many years it was on, it's a lot. What I learned from it just reinforces what I already knew and believed, the critical importance of leadership at every level. Leadership doesn't mean one person, the CEO. It means a CEO who could instill and inspire leadership at every level of his or her business. And the same thing, you talk about the military. There were great leaders, and there were a lot of people who have leadership jobs. You know, there's a lot of people in positions where there should be leaderships, but there's not that many great leaders. And sometimes when we were in Vietnam, we were basically a 13-man team. And the, the guy that was the real leader was Willie Wilson. Now, his job wasn't the leader. He didn't have the time and grade. He was a captain, but he was outranked by two weeks or a month or something by the guy that had that job. But Willie was the guy that everybody listened to. He's the one who inspired us. He's the one that we followed. He's the one that incentivized us, motivated us. And by the way, the guy in charge wasn't somebody that was very inspirational. There, there were some issues there, and I can tell you that was, but there were four or five other guys in that job. Tom Fusell, Ooh, Fuzzy Fussell was one tough character, man. And um, back in the States, I'm pretty sure he was stationed at Luke where he's a 105 pilot. He never took over the role of that leadership, but there were two or three guys, Bob Satola, one of these guys that goes out there and pumps his fist. Willie Wilson was in his way, in, in the way he did things. He wasn't a pound-the-table kind of pumping guy. But leadership happens at every level. And it's usually grassroots in so many ways. 
I know that they teach leadership, but it's got to come from within. And it's something that people just learn growing up how to take charge of situations. And I know for myself that that leadership came from being in trouble, looking around. Okay, who's going to handle this? There's nobody else. It's up to you, buddy. So how are you going to get out of this one? What are you going to do? We got to get from Coney Island back to Sheepshead Bay, and there's a lot of territory between there, and there's a lot of people out there that, that really don't like us on their streets. I've had that situation as a kid. I remember the first time I saw the movie The Warriors, where these guys are in the Bronx, all these gangs are all getting together to do something, and Somebody gets shot, somebody gets killed, and these guys got to go back to Coney Island. I'm looking at this movie, and I'm going, that's me. That's my life. <laughs> going, getting from the Bronx to Coney Island, getting from Coney Island to Coney Island. I remember getting in fights and, you know, really wars in Coney Island. And I'm from Sheepshead Bay, but I, I also spent a lot of time working and living in my, my cousin's house on West 3rd and Surf Avenue, right by the L, the L one, right by... Kenny's window, man. It was like, you could reach out and touch it. So on one end of Coney Island, and you want to get back towards Brighton, you got a tough time. There were a couple of times there where I almost didn't make it. And when I did make it, I had a few scars. So you're with you guys, and if you get into that situation where you're with three, five guys, six guys, and you're in trouble one way or another, and nobody's taking the lead, you either sit there, and just, you're going to be a victim, or you take charge. So if you grow up in that kind of environment, that's what you do. And I know that we talked about growing up in Brooklyn the other day. Katrina, she really wanted to do that podcast. And she just said, okay, I got to ask you these questions. Let's go through your childhood. What happened? What happened here? What happened there? And we were talking about it. So I listened to it the other day, and it was interesting. When I get back, I got back some interesting stuff as I'm watching what's going on. And this, and we're in trouble. And sometimes when you go in trouble, you got to get back before you get out of the, the trouble. First, you got to identify it. Then you got to go back. Who are you? What's your skill set? What, what makes you think you can get out of this mess by this or doing that? Most of the stuff is instinctive. You either know it or you don't. You got that ability or you don't have that ability. And if you have it, you get a sense and feeling, you just go there. As a martial artist, I remember training and training. And then you're in a tournament or you're taking a test or you're doing something. And the first thing you're going to learn or you're going to tell your students is forget everything that you're thinking about. Just get out there and do what your mind and body tells you to do. Don't think about it at this point. You know, when you're training and we tell you, do this, throw so many kicks or throw so many punches and do this and do that. You got to think about it. Think about how you're doing it. Your form, is your back foot flat on the ground? Are you moving this? Is your shoulder that way? Is your arm that way? Where's your, you know, I always say you when you punch, you bring your, you bring your fist back twice as fast as the fist that's going out. You think about that. But when it comes time, you're facing off with somebody, that's not the time to think about form. It's not the time to think about form or function. It's the time to function. It's the time to just get moving. It's what you know. It's going to come out. So 
that's the same thing. As you get in trouble, your instincts have to take over, not because you're just living on instincts, because that's what all the training and all the education and everything that you've done in life to build yourself into this person you are, you either are or you're not, and you just got to go for it. And I think society is like that. When I talk about leadership as an individual, but leadership, it's also a group thing, Tucker calls, but group think is an interesting phenomenon. It's when, you know, we all instinctively understand that we're in trouble here. We can feel what's going on. How do we get out of this? So I want to go back a little bit again and revisit where I was talking about growing up in the projects and going to reform school and getting out and this job and that job and working at Ropage and BCB Cleaners and the other jobs I had because I did have some other jobs. But let me tell you something about those jobs. I was making money. I was getting paid. I was earning a living. I was like from 11, 12, 13, and 14 and 15. You're, you're a little bit bigger. You could take on more things. So I went from Ropage to BZB. In the winter time, I started thinking about what other things. It's kind of cool to think about it. I made a lot of money shoveling snow. That was like a big payday. Anytime it snowed, man, you know, break out the shovels and get out there and, and do it. And that was a big deal. So how else did we make money? I'm talking about legitimate ways. I worked in the stables down at Bergen Beach in Brooklyn. There were three stables. The one that was legendary before I got there, and I'm talking, I'm going back to the 50s, folks. We're going way back. The Circle J was like, man, they dominated, and that burnt down. So you walk down Avenue U, I'd say Utica Avenue might have been 65th Street or something, so you have to walk to 78th Street. And then you go down, and it's all just open lots, nothing else, open, just big open areas. And you had Bergen Beach Stables. Right across the street from Bergen Beach was Carroll's Riding Academy. And then south of Bergen Beach, on the same side of the street, was Ryan's. And the first stable I worked in, I, I was probably junior high school. I remember at lunchtime, some of the older guys that we know, I think it was Benny Sizano, there was like six or eight Sizano brothers. And a couple of them come riding up on horses at lunch. It was like, wow. Then we found out they rode the horses down from the stables in Bergen Beach. And by the way, that was kind of a ways away. You had to be a heck of a horseman to be able to do that. But, you know, where you're coming from, I talked to Sizano, and it's like Bergen Beach. And then I, I found myself in Bergen Beach. I'd say it was a three-mile walk. So go down to Bergen Beach, and I go down the stables. And then I scout it out, and I go back, and I say, I'm going to go down. I'm going to figure this out. I get down there. My first time, I get to Ryan's. I got there early in the morning. It just happened. There were a couple of regulars that were there. There was a gentleman and that gentleman's daughter. And they opened up the stable from outside, walk in, saddle up. And I was just standing there. I was like, I, I don't know how come, but they just saddled up one for me. <laughs> I didn't know anything about riding a horse. I got on a horse named Champion. That was Gene Autry's horse's name, by the way. And I knew that. But got on the horse, and we went out. We walked down the street. 
for about a block and a half as you get to towards the beach, and then it gets all dirt, sandy, and then you're on the beach. And that's where we rode the horses. And that's how I learned how to ride. And this guy turned out to be the veterinarian, and that was his daughter. And then there was another guy with him, a family friend. And he was showing me, hey, don't hold the horn. You know, it was a Western Saddles. Don't hold the horn. Do this, do that. I remember the horse rearing up and, you know, them telling me what to do. And then, then I got friendly with them, and it turned out they had a regular deal. He was uh, Mike Ryan's veterinarian and took care of the horses. And so Mike would let him come there and open up early in the morning whenever he wanted to, take out horses, ride for an hour or so, come back. I'd started doing that and learned how to ride horses that way. And the next thing I know, this veterinarian is saying to Mike, you should hire this kid. So I worked for Ryan for a little while. He was a tough guy. And then he also had a, a little bar right next to the stable. He was paying me $5 a day. And it sounds like it's not a lot of money. That was a lot of money. But. There were a couple of guys that worked across the street. We'd all hang out right in the middle. And I got friendly with Artie Finnegan and Sapu. Those were the two guys. And they were older guys. Everybody was old. I was the youngest kid on the block. The Sizana brothers worked there. Artie Finnegan was the lead guy at Carol's. And they talked me into coming over at Carol's. I didn't want to leave Mike Ryan. But Mike was a difficult guy, and you couldn't talk to him. And I, somehow I ended up at Carol's, and I worked there for a couple of years. Got $7 a day, plus tips for taking rides out. And so we talked about it the other day. I said, wait a minute, I did all this stuff, and it just seemed to come naturally. By the way, while I was doing BZB, sometime when I wasn't working, if you know, I'd hang out on the road page with the guys and Doc, would, you know, hey, can I, yeah, I'd make money doing that. I'd make money doing something else. Then we started to get a little older. 14, 15, I started running card games. And I'm thinking, all the things that we did to earn a living, even as little kids. And, of course, we're just emulating what my dad did. My dad worked job after job. There was no minimum wage back then, by the way. The first time I ran into a minimum wage was when I was working for Tony Ambrosio. Frank Ambrosio owned the Continental Hotel over on Rockaway Boulevard outside the airport. My dad, who was driving the cab, was the night manager at Frank's. They came over from the old country, from Italy, and Tony Ambrosio was one tough guy to work for, but what a great man. He was just one of those, you know, guys. And he was building all the curbs in the parking lot of the Continental Hotel, and we ended up building we extended a wall, and I don't know anything about this stuff, but, you know, 15 years old, there was more money than you could make doing almost anything else. You're a kid from Brooklyn. You get a chance like this, and it's like, wow, this is great. I'm a construction worker. Yeah, it was just, it was a title that was great. And so I go and I saw work of a Tony Ambrosio. You're just learning this stuff. It's not just complicated, it's exciting to be able to, you know, to learn at this level of grassroots construction. I'm building a curbs in a parking lot. And then we built that wall. It was just a great opportunity. It was exciting. And I made money. And it was 1959, 1960. But all of a sudden, there's a minimum wage. 
and they had to pay me a minimum wage. Now, before that, I'd come by, but we'd go to lunch. There was a little Italian deli on the corner, and I used to get a meatball here or there. Everybody with it, me and Tony, there were a couple of other guys on the show. And we'd go and we'd sit around, and we'd buy me a can of Rheingold beer. I was barely 15. And, and you know, and the meatball hero, and, and, and he, was, he was trying to get me to stop smoking. I was smoking, I think, a pack of Lucky's Camels, a Chesterfield, or something a day. And while I was working, there was no way. That you could smoke a cigarette work of Tony Ambrosio. There's no way. Hey, you, you know, you don't know, smoke all day. You come here for lunch. What, you got to light it up? now? You, you're thinking about it. Let's just get through the day. No smoke. You're going to save 28 cents a day every day. Made a lot of sense. I, I quit. That was it. That's how I quit smoking. Tony Ambrosio made me feel like, wait a minute. This is pretty stupid, isn't it? If I'm going, what, at lunchtime? I'm so excited about getting my meatball hero and a can of beer that lighting that cigarette was like interfering. It made sense. So I stopped doing that. I, I know it's not like the guy is running a crew of 50. He's, he's got this kid and he's mentoring me and it's leadership and it's what it is. And it's what you learn in life when you have good people around you like that teach you. You teach and you learn, and as you learn, it just it keeps on going. This is what it is, but I, as I look back, and I say, wait, I made money every little chance I had. Oh, yeah, I played a lot of handball, boxed for the PAL. It, it wasn't like the only thing you did was work, but it was one of the most important things. And as I look back, without even thinking about then, it was survival. It was just trying to help the family get through things. You look at it and you go, wait, if the full composite of it was doing everything you could to make money wherever you could make a buck and whatever you could do. And some of those things were cool and exciting. I, I liked working for BZB cleaners. I wouldn't call it cool and exciting, but it was a good job. But working at the stables, working with Tony Ambrosio, there was a, a couple of other things. And then when we got out of the projects and moved out to Plainview, working with Sal in franchise air conditioning in the Bronx and getting paid good money. And that's when money started, like, piling up because then I was making a lot of money. But when the minimum wage hit, instead of just showing up and getting paid, working straight through and doing all of a sudden, everything changed, and I couldn't work the same amount of hours. It became difficult. By the end of the summer, I just I couldn't do it anymore because I made less money. At, I think the minimum wage was a buck fifty an hour, and I was getting paid a buck an hour, but I was getting lunch. I was getting paid for the full time, and all of a sudden, everything became very structured. You got paid for the hours that you're actually shoveling cement in the wheelbarrow. You got to, when you're off, 4 o'clock comes, you're done, or 3 o'clock, whatever. When you got to start, you say, it changed the context of everything. It just did. So that summer, I went to work for Wallbaums out on Long Island. I went to work for the pizza place. This is what we did. 
this was the norm for a 15-year-old kid. And when I got to be 60, and I know I was 15, because I had to get working papers. So I was making pizza, which really was cool, but wall bounds was great until I went to slice a piece of pastrami, and the lady that was ordering, I'm behind the counter, I'm slicing her pastrami, turns out to be my friend Steve's girlfriend's mother, and she recognized her, and she starts yelling out, like, Michael, blah, blah, blah. And I'm hearing her, and I slice the top of my thumb off. Not funny. One funny man, it ain't funny now. It was like, whoa. The next thing I hear, Max, that was the guy that ran the Max. She says, Max, don't give me any pastrami with blood on it. Swear to God, you can't make it up. So they rushed me to the hospital, and that is how I knew that I wasn't 16. Couldn't have been 16, but I didn't have working papers, so they had to pay me double. That was it. So <laughs> the stupid little things you remember. Anyway, the composite is you always worked. You always had a job. You always looked for a job. And then when I was working with Sal at a, a man that was, it was franchise air conditioning in the Bronx, I take the air conditioning, and you know, I'm 15 years old. I take the air conditioning. I pick it up. It's in my hand. I'm going out to the truck. I get to the truck. What am I supposed to do? You got a panel truck sitting there, the 55 panel truck, but the thing was beat up. It's in the Bronx. It's in, get out to the panel truck. I got this air conditioner. I don't know what it weighs. 50, 60 pounds, 70 pounds, it's an air conditioner. One that goes to the window. I get it in my hands. So I kick the door in the truck. The door truck swings open and I put the air conditioner in. This is what I did. One day, I go out, I bring the unit to the truck. There was a deli next door. I think Sal was in the deli with the other couple of guys having coffee before we get hit the road. I kick the door. The door opens. I start to put the AC in. Morty Bow comes out there yelling and screaming, What are you doing? That's my truck. You kick my. And then Sal comes running out and he gets in a big fight with Morty. He says, Hey, you don't yell at Mikey like that. So he was trying to do that. It was like not tumultuous. But. They couldn't fire me because Sal said, you fired Mikey, I'm gone. And that was it, man. So I had this job. I had a job security's name was Sal. And I learned a little bit about putting air conditionings in through transoms, putting them through windows. We've made side jobs like you couldn't believe. We would talk to these guys, hey, listen, if you want us to put AC through the wall in your house, up in wherever you live, in Westchester, Queens, Long Island, you know, here it is, and we'll do it. We'll come on the weekend, and blah, blah. so we did that, and it was it was interesting. The money was good. It was really for a kid that age, and I was sixteen, and life was good. But it was always about having a job, always about making money, having an income, being responsible that way. It never had to be taught to you. No one had to explain. Even today, I look back. And if I didn't do that podcast the other day that I just listened to, that's interesting because that was what life was about. It wasn't about playing video games. You didn't get to watch every football, baseball, basketball game all the time. You didn't play fantasy anything. If you had time, I was on the handball courts like crazy. When I think back of all the different Jobs, I had all the places. I had a newspaper. I was in Brooklyn. I talked to the guy at Junior's on Nostrand Avenue 
in Flatbush, the world famous, I'm sure it's still there, Junior's Cheesecake. It was just great. So that's all the way up Flatbush Avenue. The guy builds a place and calls it Seniors. You could buy a paper on Saturday night. You get the Sunday papers. I go in there and I said, listen, if it's okay, I'd like to sell newspapers on Saturday night. I want to sell the, the news in the mirror and the times and whatever else I could get. But the news in the mirror, for sure, because those were the two big papers. So he agrees to it. And I ordered, and I, I, I don't know where in the world I made this kind of money from to get the first bunch. But in one week, I saved the $25 just from BZB Cleaners to buy a bicycle. So I ordered 300 Daily News, 300 Daily Mirrors. I couldn't get the Times. The New York Times cost 17 cents a piece. You sold it for a quarter. The news and the mirror cost seven cents a piece. You sold it for a dime. So you made three cents a paper. I had 300 papers. That was good money, right? Nine bucks, nine bucks. And I didn't have enough money to buy the times at the beginning. So I bought 300 of each. You go down, they deliver the papers. I set up like the wooden crates that I could put them on. And I set up on the side of seniors like a little workstation that I could put the papers together on. So I did that, and I had some friends help me. And the first Saturday night, we sold the first, I, I had 300 of each, so that's 600 papers. I sold, I sold the first 590 by like 12.30 in the morning. And it took me an hour. It took me from 9.30 at 10 o'clock, whenever I had the papers set up, until two hours later, I was basically sold out. But I had to stay there until the very last paper was sold. And that took about another hour. 1950s Brooklyn, it just didn't sell. But I did that. And then that week, I ordered 300 each. Ba -ba Boom, they came down, the same thing. And then week after week, it was great. I had my own business. And I don't think it was my first. It might have been, but it was certainly cool. And I had my first real, honest-to-goodness business. Here I am, and I'm selling out the papers. I was talking to the people from the New York Times, and I was trying to figure out how to get it down from 17 cents. I think I did get the Times. I forgot how many, maybe 25 or 50 or something like that. And it came once, but after... Four or five weeks, which, I mean, I was doing great. And my friends would hang around. And I, I maybe I'd give them a buck. A buck was a lot of money. And then one Saturday night, about 10, 11 o'clock at night, guy pulls up in a car, a couple of guys. They get out of the car, and they come over, and they're really friendly. Yeah, I'm 15. These guys are in their 20s, right? And they're going, hey, man, this is great. We're watching what you're doing. Yay. This is great. We're going to set you up with rollers. You don't need this stuff over here like that. And we're going to get you a little thing with a warning over here. So when it rains, it snows. Papa, you got this and that. And, then, and I'm looking at the guy like, hey, listen, get out of my way. I'm trying to sell some papers over here. And he's like, you know, we're just trying to help you out, man. Hey, look, you're going to make a lot of money. Whatever you're doing, you're going to make a lot more money. And I'm like, 
oh, okay, but wait a minute. What are you going to? And then he says, listen, we got all the newspaper stands on King's Highway. We got them all on Coney Island Avenue Boulevard. We got them all. And we're going to, and this, and you're going to be great because you're going to work for us. You're going to love it. I said, no, I'm not. I'm looking, I'm saying, get out of here. These are all the guys. And I'm trying to sell newspapers to the people coming out and seniors. <laughs> get their Saturday night fix after they go out, they go for the movies, they get the thump, bum, they come out and want to sell them a paper. Hey, I got the Sunday beer. Hey, I got the Sunday news. And this guy's over interfering. Plus, he's telling me something. I think it took me the first three and a half seconds to figure out what he's doing. <laughs> and I'm just like, hey, fella, listen, I don't want to. You go, hey, listen, we're gonna, we'll come back. We'll talk. And then they come back a little while later. Now it's like 12 o'clock and there's less people. And he says, look, let me explain this to you. This is how it works. And I'm like, you don't tell me nothing. This is my newspaper stand. Well, then I'm arguing. And I, I had a little pen knife in my hand that I used to cut the strings on the newspapers. And I do this and that. And it's, it's laying there and holding the papers down. And I got that sitting there and something else sitting there. And this guy is there, and his buddy is standing behind him. They're not threatening, don't get me wrong. They weren't being mafioso kind of boom, 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 but they were doing it in the night. I was a kid. And I saw what they're trying to do, and I'm going, this is my world. I've been doing this for a month. The guys all knew me. Now my customers will come there. They all have nice things to say. And so this was like a month, four, five, six weekends that went on, and then all of a sudden this. And I'm sitting there, and I just saw the writing on the wall. And I just charge after this guy. A couple of my friends are behind me. And he starts taking off, and his buddy takes off. They, they don't stand there. This ain't the Sopranos, buddy. They just start running. I chase them across the street. They go in their car, which is all the way across the street. I remember I almost got hit by a car chasing them, and he takes off. Okay. So I figured, well, maybe it was just some whatever. I won this, everything's good. I call up and I order my mirrors and news and times and um, can't do it. Won't take my order. What? No, I'm, I can't do it. We're done. And I was like, what the hell is going on? So I get my friends, all of them. They were just my buddies. So there was about six guys. I got them all. I said, guys, you got to meet me. I think I'm getting screwed out of this deal. Blah, blah, blah. Wait, what's going on? So we talk, and all of a sudden, boom, it's all shattered. It's done. It's like, hey, this is what happened. We go down, about six of us, and we see the news in America, and this guy's got everything set up, and we watch, and the guy's going, wait, let's just go in there and wreck it. And I was so upset. At the same time, I really liked the people at seniors, but I saw the writing on the walls, and I, I remember saying something about, I don't want to mess up seniors. I don't want to break any windows, because when we go in there, we're going to bombard these guys with everything, bricks and rocks. They're bigger than they're older. There was only two of them. So we're sitting there talking, and I remember my friend saying to me, well, the, the guys from seniors didn't seem to you know, mind that these guys came in and threw you out. I, I, I remember him saying that. And then I don't know what the words were like. Yeah, right. Like he's going to worry about you or they just want whatever he said. And that was it. We waited for them to get the newspapers together and they were bringing them out on carts with wheels from the side 
to the front where they had the thing. They didn't have any awning set up, but you could see they had a nice setup. And when they were coming out, we just went in there, and those newspapers were all over Nostradamia. Boom. That was it. Just wrecked their whole thing. Newspapers over Nostrand Avenue. So let me wrap this up. It was just, after listening to, you know, my growing up in Brooklyn, the hand I was dealt, and this one was just, you know, you run into these situations. Nothing changes in life. You, you know, your high aspirations, you work hard, you build stuff. Yeah, that was only a month, but you have no idea what it felt like to a kid my age, 15 at that time. I forgot all about that newspaper story. Overall, growing up in America, you learned that nobody was going to come and pay your rent and give you food and pay for anything. You had to do it, so you did it. There was all kinds of problems. When I was working in wall bounds and cutting off my thumb, when I was working, setting my newspaper stand up, there were other things. You ran into a buzzsaw here, there, everywhere. The cops coming to Teddy, my boss at BZB, and, and showing him my JD card. You know, you learn how to overcome these things. You learn that obstacles are there to overcome. You learn that there's jobs and there's ways of making money, and you go from one to the other to the other and to do what you have to do. And I learned from watching my dad do the same thing, and at night, study, go to school every night. I didn't learn that lesson as good as I should have, but I learned it, and at least I learned to appreciate it. So, you know, leadership sometimes by group, what are we leading our kids to? What are we leading our culture to? What are we teaching people? The government's going to come along. That was never going to happen. Not in the America that I grew up in. This was never going to be where the government's going to step up. Okay, you're going to throw the CCP and the CC with all those, you know, depression era, you know, things that built the TWA and built all this stuff. The Tennessee Valley Association and all that. Yeah, we built a lot that way. But that's not what the individual American is. It's not what makes us great. It's not the private industry that we can build and that we can make our livelihoods from and create the neighborhoods and create the legacies of America. If we transfer this to the government to do, it's going to be a disaster for the American dream. The American dream is the life I led. And that's the life I'm talking about. That's the life that I want to continue leading. That's the life that I want to see America pass on to every generation. This generation needs to preserve that American dream. That American dream doesn't come cheap and it doesn't come easy. And the government doing all these things, making up all these rules, putting up all the obstacles that the government could put up, they're just obstacles to our dreams. I'm New York Mike. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more Roll Right Radio. Don't forget Roll Right Radio. Subscribe. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Roll Right Radio podcast. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.